3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current pants. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Yeah. Tracy would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation through owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Tracy pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. Uncover the depths of human connection and power in the new opera by Evan Lawson and Nicole Butcher, The Sea. This visceral exploration of love, lust and the corrupting influence of power in relationships washes over you in this extraordinary collaboration between Forest Collective and BK Opera. The Sea plays from the 7th until the 10th of December at Abbotsford Condon. Tickets available from forestcollective.com.au. Forest Collective is a 3CR supporter. Wednesday breakfast listeners. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Sonara. How are you today? I'm good. Yeah, it's it was a bit chilly today coming in, but I'm sure it will warm up. Um, yeah. Well, we have another Wednesday uh, breakfast program, a vi- another busy one, um, and some really interesting content today. Mm. So I'm excited to share with our listeners what we have on this morning. So kicking off at around 10 past 7, we'll be speaking to the author of Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalisation, talking about mainstream social media platforms and the way far-right women share Instagram stories about organic foods that help pregnant women propagate the pure right white race and post behind-the-scenes selfies at anti-vaccination rallies. So that will be a very enlightening um, and perhaps mm, disturbing sounds crazy. <laughs> discussion. And that will be followed by uh, Jessica Owl, who is the author of Cold Enough for Snow. And we spoke to Jessica earlier in the year when she won the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for fiction and the overall prize. And Jessica has just taken out the Australian Prime Minister's Literature Prize for fiction. So we'll be uh, having a listen back to um, what she has said about her novel. And then, Sonera, you've got something yep, and, for us um, on AI. Coming up later on, we'll be talking about you know, AI automation, um, what it means um, for the future and how specifically it will impact jobs here and overseas. Um, very interesting and important. Um, so stay tuned for that. Absolutely. And then to round out the show, just after eight o'clock, we'll be speaking with Sonia Randau, who is a broadcaster and journalist who set up the first community radio station in Malaysia back in the early 2000s. And we will be speaking to Sonia about that process, what that meant, Um, and also getting some insights on the international community media space. 
because she's been involved in some gender equity policy making internationally and also been an Asia representative at the World Community Radio uh, Federation Convention. And uh, we celebrate this week 100 years of radio in uh, Australia. Mm. So I think tomorrow, 100 years ago, the first radio uh, show was aired in Sydney. And, wow. yeah, so we've been on the airways for 100 years. Uh, but it'll be really interesting to speak to Sonia and get her perspective on what it's like setting up a radio station and particularly a community radio station in uh, another country. Sounds interesting. Well, um, stay tuned. I will just be going to some announcements. Oh, sorry. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm. We're talking about what health, well-being and body sovereignty mean for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands with programming by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR and broader community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2023. Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast on 3CR 855. Um, on the no- it's, uh, Today is November the 22nd. And for our headlines today, the Iranian Supreme Court has reportedly confirmed the death sentence of 22-year-old Milad Zahravand, a protester detained during last year's Women Life Freedom Unrest. The announcement was reported in the independent Iranian news outlet Radio Farda and has sparked concerns that his execution may be imminent. Zahravand was charged in the death uh, of Nazari, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corp agent who was part of the security forces trying to suppress street protests that occurred after gathering after a gathering of students at the Malaya Faculty of Medical Sciences following Masa Amini's death. Amini was being held in custody for an alleged headscarf violation at the time of her death. Right groups, uh, far-right groups have questioned the charges, 
was it right groups was uh, right groups have questioned the charges with free legal advisory platform Dadban posting the following on X. Zohravan's death, sent- death sentence was confirmed in the Supreme Court, while according to informed so- sources, he was denied access to a lawyer during his detention. And during this time, his family was under severe pressure from the IRGC intelligence organization not to disseminate information about him. According to the Radio Fado report, the Iranian judiciary has executed seven detainees from the nationwide protests of 2023 over the past year. The United Nations reports uh, the United Nations reports Iran put to death at least 419 people in the first seven months of this year. 80, yeah. 87% of single mothers are worried about their long-term financial well-being, according to a Council for Single Mothers and Their Children's national report launched on Monday, illuminating the experiences of mothers parenting solo. In other findings, 78% of single mothers are in paid employment, 56% have a university degree, but their children are over twice as likely to be living in poverty than a child in couple families. One third of families with a single mother have no savings. A massive 67% of single mothers and their children reported to having experienced family violence. And in sport, the Socceroos have secured a 1-0 win against Palestine in a World Cup qualifying match in Kuwait overnight. The winning goal was a header shot by Harry Sutar. The match was originally scheduled to be played in the Palestine home ground city of Ramallah in the West Bank, but was moved due to the ongoing Israeli conflict. Palestine's head coach acknowledged the team is under psychological stress due to the war. Three of the Palestinian team were unable to leave Gaza to play in the event and training was moved twice during preparation for the series. And that's our headlines this morning. And we're going to head into our first segment and we have Zoe with us now to present this. Good morning. Uh Cam and Andy from Yena Passaran speaks to, to Dr. Evian Radif, who is the author of Women for Rights Social Media Influencer and Online Radicalization. On mainstream social media platform, uh, women share Instagram stories about organic foods that help pre- pregnant women propagate. The pure white race and post behind the scenes selfies at anti-vaccination rallies. The social media personalities model a feminist lifestyle at once promoting their personal brands and radicalizing their followers. In discussions of issues like dating, marriage and family life, they call on women to be become housewives. In her book, Evian Ludig offers an in-depth look into the world of far-right women influencers, 
exploring the digital lives they cultivate as they seek new recruits for white nationalism. Going beyond stereotypes of t- uh, typical male white supremacists, she uncovers how young, attractive women are playing roles as organizers, fundraisers, and entrepreneurs. You can listen to her a year now, pass around every Thursday, 4.30 to 5 p.m. We are joined by a returning guest, Dr. Evian Lardig, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Tilburg and is also the author of The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization. Thanks for joining us, Evian. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about the book? What was the impetus for writing it? Yeah, so when I started writing off this book, I guess what really motivated me was, I should note that I started writing this book at the heyday of the of the so-called alt-right. And I was noticing how time and again, there's a lot of media, as well, I should say, academic stereotypes about you know what the far right looks like. And, and I think when we imagine what the far right looks like, it's typically these angry young men, and particularly Western societies, angry young white men. And I knew that there was a lot of, let's say, prominent female figures within the alt-right at the time. So I'm thinking about people like Lauren Southern or, or Brittany Pettibone, now Zellner, who were quite active and, and quite visible within the movement. And so that piqued my curiosity in terms of wanting to write about them and what they saw their roles to be within the far right. And the arguments of the book, as I started to dive into it deeper, was that these women were playing quite a significant role in terms of normalizing and legitimizing all of far-right ideas. And these women were quite invaluable in promoting these narratives. And so that led me to, I think, that you know why I wanted to write this book and, and the motivation behind it. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the process? How did you go about finding out what these women were up to? Well, I mean, some of them were already quite active YouTubers. And I had first read Rebecca Lewis's report about reactionary right YouTubers. And she had drawn out this this map or this ecosystem. So I used that as a as a way to start to jump off of, you know, who was who within this network. And I started to see these women, especially on collabs with their male contemporaries within the alt-right. So I used that as a basis. But then from there, I started to see try to track their social media activity and see like who was becoming quite prominent on, on different far right channels. So it evolved organically from there. But as you know, as you know about the far right, it is a quickly changing landscape. And there was sort of like new figures popping up on the scene that I started to write about. So I started off focusing on figures like Lauren Southern and Brittany Pettibone, also people like Lacey Lynn and Ayla Stewart. But then I started to write more about People like Ava Flodringbroek, who's a Dutch political activist, who's at the forefront of a lot of this Great Reset conspiracy theory stuff, as well as Thais Descouffon, who was a former spokesperson for the Identitarian Movement in France. So there's new figures that popped up on the scene over time. Also the, the so-called tradwives, who have become quite a trendy talking point. So people like Mrs. Midwest, for example. So yeah, I mean, I think I just I really just dived into it in terms of there was a few people that I really focused on, but like as the landscape changed, as the movement changed over these last few years, I, I started to look into new figures who were popping up on the scene. Evian, when I think about the alt-right and the, the male figures associated with the movement, I think of 
people like Richard Spencer and I guess Milton Selner and so on. And in the media reportage and perhaps in some academic treatments, there was a kind of preoccupation with their appearance, the fact that they appeared to be a clean cut, well-spoken and so on. What were the distinctive features or what are the distinctive features of the, the women on the far right? And how do they relate to these, I guess, ascetic dimensions of the, the men on the far right? So absolutely the women that I study who I describe as influencers, they have very similar appearances in terms of seemingly to be educated and well-spoken and articulate, attractive in the normative sense, you could say. You know, some of them are married to men within this movement, and those men can be quite visible figures like Martin Zellner or less visible ones who they may not actually mention by name, but we know based upon the content that they've created that they'll reveal that they've met their husbands through this movement. And and I think you're quite right in terms of the general image that they're trying to promote, which is that is of appealing to, to broad audiences and, and being quite articulate. But I think what makes these women stand out from their male counterparts, and this is an argument in the book, is that yes, they do make videos reacting to political commentary or having hot takes on current events. But they also try to position themselves in a more holistic way in terms of their personal brands. So I focus a lot on Instagram as a platform. And what I show on Instagram is how they are trying to use the features of the platform, like Instagram stories, to showcase really the banal aspects of their everyday lives. So they share things like cooking recipes or or baby foods that they're making for their families. And these more banal um, aspects of of far-right propaganda, essentially, is what it is is a way of making them seem to be quite relatable and accessible to their audiences. And so the fact that they're going out of their way beyond the political commentary towards trying to showcase their their everyday lives and trying to model that as an aspirational image for their audiences is, I think, something that makes them quite distinct from their male counterparts. Do you think in that case that it's a, a kind of a, a lifestyle or a culture that's being sold on the part of these women? Oh, 100%. I mean, these women are very much trying to model this lifestyle in terms of merging their political ideology with their personal lifestyle into something that is aspirational. But I do want to caution audiences in the sense that this is also a performance and it is a a cultivation of a perception that they are modeling these lifestyles. I mean, Sure, you can see what they post on Instagram stories, but that doesn't necessarily mean that is the reality of their lived experience. So they're definitely quite attuned to how they are modeling this in a performative way for their followers. Could you speak a little bit about the the role of micro-celebrity in in these movements? Yeah, thanks for that question. And I guess we're going to dig into the theory now of, of this section of the podcast. So I use some terms from media studies, in particular those who have researched influencer culture. And by that, I mean, yes, we can think about influencers on social media, but there are those who have actually been studying it as a type of culture in terms of that relationship between the viewer and the influencer. Now, within the literature, there is this concept of micro-celebrity, which is somebody who is essentially a celebrity for a rather niche audience. So in this case, it would be the far right or the alt-right. And micro-celebrities, they tend to use very specific strategies in order to make them seem relatable, accessible, and authentic to their followers. So on the one hand, there is a glamorizing effect, like they are a celebrity, 
But on the other hand, they try to make themselves seem quite relatable to their audiences. So that might be revealing more intimate aspects of their daily lives. So like, as I mentioned earlier, maybe it's just an Instagram story about preparing dinner for the family, something like that. And so what these far-right women influencers do, as I show in the book, is that they're really attuned to using these types of micro-celebrity strategies in, as, a, as really as tactics of radicalization, because they are, in essence, normalizing or legitimizing what, is, what seems to be far-right ideas and ideology into easily digestible formats for their audiences. And they usually do so through this quite subtle language or through quite coded language as a way of you know, perhaps not being so as explicit or, or confrontational as their male counterparts, but as a more subtle way of showcasing far-right propaganda. And I argue that this is actually a lot more insidious and dangerous in the long run. One of the common contradictions that you find looking at some of these people is the more successful you are as a you know a far-right female influencer, your audience is increasingly going to consist of men who actively resent you and women who maybe are not that far off that either. How do these people navigate these environments where you know, a large part of their audience are misogynists? Yeah, 100%. That, that is such an irony because they try to promote these narratives around traditional families and traditional gender norms and yet they face really this onslaught of, of misogyny, which is, again, it's ironic because it's female support and misogyny, and yet there's a lot of misogynists who attack them. And I write about the, the concept of the trad thought in the book, in particular how it was levied against figures like Lauren Southern, who they claimed to speak about all these traditional values and not actually model that in their, in their daily lives. And that was before she got married, etc., and, you know, the way that these women try to defend themselves against these male critics, despite having some allies in, in the manosphere, you could say, is that they try to justify their platform by saying, well, we need to have women within this movement speaking out because who else is going to do so? And that's the justification that they use for their platforms. But again, I mean, they just they do love the celebrity. They love the attention. And despite the fact that they will get critics, you know, it is something to bear in mind in terms of the fact that they are opportunists, they are grifters, and they do love the celebrity that they receive more broadly on these platforms. So I think they tend to dismiss a lot of these misogynists who make these, you know, sexist and, and patriarchal comments to them. And, and sometimes they'll try to belittle these misogynists as well. So I remember one time watching this live stream uh, on YouTube, and there were some pretty extreme misogynist comments in the chat uh, as the live stream was going on. And they would say, like, you know, if, if you're making these comments, we're just going to kick you off the chat or they would try to make these like demasculating comments towards these viewers on, in the chat. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is this is an inevitable aspect. I think in terms of unpacking, you know, how how messy and and how deeply ingrained misogyny can be within the far right, even for these women who who do receive so much attention and celebrity for their platforms. Well, I mean, in terms of the audience and its response, is is the product differentiated? Is are these women attempting to appeal to men and women, or to women exclusively? What's what's their approach in your understanding? 
Yeah, thanks so much for that question. Because when I started writing this book, I had assumed that these far right women influencers will be primarily recruiting women into the movement. And very interestingly, I had found that at least on YouTube, um, it seemed like they were actually recruiting and or radicalizing their male viewers. And I think one influencer had mentioned that she looked at her YouTube analytics the other day, and 85% of her viewers were male, which was quite an astonishing number and also a bit ironic because in terms of her sponsors, I remember at one point she was also sponsored by this organic cotton tampon company, which clearly shows that these these sponsors really have no idea who they're actually sponsoring sometimes. And this led me to understand and unpack the ways that they were using different types of gender narratives towards radicalization and recruitment. So these women are very good at also creating content designed specifically for their male viewers. And they'll talk about tropes concerning masculinity and this notion that mainstream society is controlled by feminists and prevents men from exercising their, quote, natural biological traits of masculinity, like aggression, leadership, and dominance. And so they say to young men, if you join the far right, you'll be able to exercise these traits and, and ideally find a traditional submissive wife within the movement and that you'll be much happier within the far right's ranks. But then on the other hand, I've noticed that when it comes to Instagram as a platform, these women tend to create content and it, and it seems based on the, the followers and commentators that they have more female followers on Instagram. And this might be because the type of content that they're posting on Instagram isn't necessarily say things like political commentary, which could be a recommendation from the male YouTubers that lead followers to their videos. But it's things like images about homemaking and, and motherhood and child rearing. It's topics like breastfeeding and trying to conceive and changing diapers. So indeed, I think these women are really good at leveraging the different features of different platforms in order to target different audiences. And when it comes to women specifically, these influencers have said they tend to want to recruit two different types of women. So the first are tradcaths or traditional Catholics who were probably raised within a religious conservative upbringing and so already are a bit more receptive to the far right's messaging around traditional gender norms. And then the second type of woman that these influencers describe as wanting to target are, quote, recovering feminists like themselves. So actually, indeed, some of these influencers did describe growing up, at least in their young adulthood, being quite liberally minded, more progressively minded, self-describing as feminist, but because of having been red-pilled, they see that feminism has supposedly ruined gender relations in mainstream society. And so they describe themselves as recovering feminists, and oftentimes they try to create content to tap into those, quote, recovering feminists who are isolated and lonely and looking for a community that the far right's messaging is, is trying to offer. You listen to interview with Dr. Evian Ludic, which Yenam Pasaran did it. You can listen to the program every Thursday from 4.30 to 5. Ludic argues, argues in her book, Women of the Far-Right Social Media Influencers and Online Radicalization, that far-right women are marketing themselves as authentic and accessible in order to reach new followers and spread a hateful ideology. 
this strategy takes advantage of the structure of social media platforms where far-right women influencers' content is shared with and promoted to mainstream audiences. Thank you for that, Zoe. And we'll, we're now going to listen to a track called Righteousness is My Weapon by Lebanese singer Julia Boutros. Motherfuck the police Now we say black lives matter But shit, the fact of matter is We 
Elijah, Kalgoorlie Razor Lighters, and watch that motherfucker burn down with the murderous lights. He killed a 14-year-old and it's still no here, no see no. I fear that there will be no justice ever for my people. So what you finna do, huh? They run on this shit with one on the clip when the government's all in it. The Royal Commission ain't shit. And man, I'm scared of getting popped by a motherfucking cop, bro. This one for York, this one for Hicking, next it could be our sock. Now we say black lives matter, but shit, the fact of was the song Black Lives Matter by Birds and the previous song was Righteousness is My Weapon by Julia Boltrus. Over to you, Claudia. Thanks, Sonera. Now, Victorian author Jessica Au has just won the 2023 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction for her novel Cold Enough for Snow, taking home the $80,000 prize. The win comes nine months after Al took out the fiction and overall prizes at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Cold Enough for Snow tells the story of a mother and daughter travelling in Japan, but there are layers of meaning within the text. I spoke to Jessica Au in February when she won the Victorian Literary Award about the impact of the award and the book. We're going to take a listen back now. Good morning, Jessica. Morning, Claudia. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on taking out both the Fiction Prize and the overall Premier's Literature Prize. What was your reaction when you heard you had won last week? Um, pure shock. <laughs> I think um, my mind sort of blanked out. I can't quite remember exactly what I said on stage, but it was, yeah, utter amazement and I think just then gratitude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely tremendous. We're going to hear a passage from the novel shortly, um, but before that, I just wanted to ask you how you felt about a particular comment that the judges made, where in commending you, they say that your novel holds the heft of a writer in full command of her craft. I wondered 
how that made you feel and whether it creates a pressure for you now as a writer? Um, I don't know if I, I mean, I think it, it, it's extremely flattering to hear something like that. Um, but I guess I would say that generally as a writer yourself, you don't feel like you're ever in full command of your craft. I think that um, writing is always difficult. It's, you know, every time you write something, you're not sure if you can ever really write anything again. Um, and I think that even the very nature of writing means that you, you have to kind of be pushing yourself. Um, you never you never sort of reach this state of, you know, completeness and being. You're always kind of questioning things and you're always searching for different ways to do things. Um, but I suppose that I guess they meant it hopefully with a satisfying reading experience, which is, which is great to hear, of course. Um, I don't know if, if that comment in particular put um, pressure on me. I, I guess um, I wasn't feeling too much pressure about writing anything really at the start of this year, um, but there's a little bit now, I have to say, just because um, it's sort of uh, in the public consciousness a little bit more. But I think, I think that's sort of natural, and I, I think, um, you know, with time that will sort of fade um, but yeah, a, a little bit of pressure, I would say. <laughs> now, you have selected an extract from the novella to read, and we'd love to, to hear that. The, the judges described your prose as like a river, pulling the reader along as the story pulls and eddies, flowing steady and deep. So I think that's a perfect entry point to ask you to, to read a little bit for our yeah, listeners. Sure. Um, yeah, so this um, passage happens about midway through the book um, and it takes place when the mother and daughter are travelling between um, Tokyo and Kyoto. I had some trouble at first finding the church, but eventually we came across it, a low box-like building in a quiet neighbourhood, and entered. Inside, the walls were made of raw concrete, which absorbed most of the light making the interior dim and grey. The floor was not flat, but sloped ever so slightly downwards, as if pulling everything towards the simple southern altar. On the wall behind the altar, two great cuts had been made, one from floor to ceiling and the other horizontally, so that they resembled a giant cross. As we sat, all our attention was focused on this large shape and the brilliant white light that streamed through the gaps, in contrast to the subdued atmosphere of the room. The effect was riveting, not unlike staring out at the daylight through the opening of a cave. And perhaps, I said to my mother, this too was what it had felt like to be in the earliest churches, when nature itself was still a force in the world, visceral and holy. I said also that the architect had originally intended the cross to be unsealed, so that air and weather would have gusted through the openings, like the will of God itself. It was a cold, grey day, and we were the only two people in the room. I asked my mother what she believed about the soul, and she thought for a moment. Then, looking not at me, but at the hard, white light before us, she said that she believed we were all essentially nothing, just a series of sensations and desires, none of it lasting. When she was growing up, she said that she had never thought of herself in isolation, but rather as inextricably linked to others. Nowadays, she said, people were hungry to know everything, 
thinking they could understand it all, as if enlightenment were just around the corner. But, she said, in fact, there was no control, and understanding would not lessen any pain. The best we could do in this life was to pass through it, like smoke through the branches, suffering until we either reached a state of nothingness or else suffered elsewhere. She spoke about other tenets of goodness and giving, the accumulation of kindness like a trove of wealth. She was looking at me then, and I knew that she wanted me to be with her on this, to follow her, but to my shame I found that I could not, and worse, that I could not even pretend. Instead, I looked at my watch and said that visiting hours were almost over and that we should probably go. So beautiful. Thank you. Would you like to share a bit about the themes you're exploring? We've said um, there is so much in this book, though it's a very slender, less than 100 pages, but uh, it's really quite a complex book in the guise of simplicity. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those layers? Um, yeah, I think that uh, probably a couple of things. I mean, number one, there's obviously that relationship between art and life, um, you know, the narrative sort of feeling that she um, connects very deeply with art. It tells her something about life, but she doesn't necessarily feel that she is an artist or capable of being one. Um, there's also sort of her just feeling about what it's like to be a young woman in the world and, you know, those moments that happen, I think, which are often very difficult to articulate um, where, you know, the world encounters you and you, you are told that you appear and are differently to how you feel. Um, and then probably, I guess, the, one of the biggest themes between the mother and the daughter is definitely about family and memory and migration and inheritance and just the sort of feeling, I suppose, that um, there can be a lot of fragmentation um, in that sort of relationship. Um, you know, the fact that with migration, it, the change happens so fast. There's so much geographical change, um, there's change in class, change in language, um, change in culture. Um, and so you can sort of know something very intimately and feel it very emotionally, while at the same time, you might not know its proper name, you might not know its history. Um, and I think the daughter is sort of contending with that very much. Um, at the same time, I think I, even though I'm sort of using words like lack and loss and things like that, um, I don't necessarily feel that it's a, it's a negative thing. I think that that sort of the gaps in that and that idea of fragmentation can actually be quite rich and quite poetic. Um, so, yeah, I think those are some of the layers um, all sort of wrapped together and how they impact each other um, and are not just isolated. Mm. And fiction writers are often asked how much they draw on their own experiences when writing a book. I wonder, is this something you have been asked to comment on, um, particularly in relation to the mother-daughter relationship, which is so central to the story? Uh, yeah, and whether you feel it's appropriate or inappropriate for authors of fiction to be asked about this personal aspect. Yeah, I think um, it's not something I've been asked completely directly, but I can sense the curiosity, I suppose, because it is also using a sort of auto-fictional voice. Um, and, I mean, I don't know if I, I have sort of a very complex opinion on it, I guess I would say. Um, I can understand why people ask it. Um, I can understand why authors don't want to be asked. 
Um, and I, I think that's a lot to do with the fact that maybe in the cultural perception, it's a very either or sort of thing. It either mm. is purely autobiographical or it's purely fictional. And I think that the worry that maybe I have and maybe other authors have is that people will misunderstand if you say that, yes, it's, it's sort of taken from life. They'll think that you mean that it's exactly you. Um, but my answer to that would be that a number of things, um, you know, we sort of, it's, it's never really exactly you in the sense that um, you sort of change anyway throughout life. So what was you a year ago when you were writing a particular page on that given day at that given hour is not you five years from now, for example. It's not static. Um, and number two, I would say that in terms of writing, um, you know, all writers, whether it's memoir, nonfiction, poetry, fiction, we are taking from life. It's just the matter of degree that you abstract from that taking, I think. Um, and even memoir itself, I would say, would have a very fictional element to it. Um, so it's, it's very kind of stretchy and porous. Um, so I certainly am thinking about a certain emotional truth, and I certainly am picking out some details, whether it's from my life or other people's lives or family life or friends. Um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of pick them out. But each one I will sort of um, stretch and craft and change um, in order to get to an emotional truth. And that's not exactly the same as the factual truth, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, that's really interesting that you make that comment, even in the context of memoir. And it sort of relates to some of the themes in your book about memory and how um, time and even things like migration can sort of shift experiences and recollections and um, what can be shared or what can be held back and the gaps. That's kind of really interesting because you've touched on all those uh, things in this book and, yeah, what you're really saying is these are parts of the way we live as human beings and how we experience life and that can even be the case when one is writing uh, in the memoir genre. Yeah, I think so. And I, I guess it's more that if you would ask two people their recollection of a certain event, you would get two stories and which one is truer. They both could have been there. They both could have had very sharp memories. It's just that, you know, because of our experience and our personalities, we, we yeah, experience things differently and we'll pull out different details and remember things differently. And I guess it's just about the understanding that something is true to us and that there are many different ways of remembering and, and many different truths. Mm. We've just got time for one more question. Um, the book's been translated into 18 languages. I wanted to ask you um, whether you've been involved in that process and been consulted by the translators and whether you worry that the eloquence and subtlety of your writing uh, will translate as beautifully in the translated works as in your work? Um, it's, it's been a sort of varied. I think generally my understanding is that I, I, my experience and understanding is that I haven't had much interaction with the translators. Um, and, you know, I think in a way it's, it's because the act of translation is a sort of creative act in itself. And I, I guess um, I was listening to a podcast and a translator said that if um, he was to accept the work, you know, idea of translating a work, it's because he feels he knows that voice and knows it so well that he shouldn't need to ask further questions. 
Um, so I, I haven't actually had much interaction with the translators. I did have maybe one um, sort of email exchange with the German translator, um, which was quite basic but, but quite nice. Um, I think one interesting thing that did happen was that apparently um, the word cold, the title cold enough for snow doesn't always translate very elegantly into other languages. Um, and so, for, for example, for the Italian version, they had to change it to, um, I think, something like tempo di neve, um, which, as far as my word, is actually a kind of a term for the weather. It literally means a time for snow, but it's a term that they use to describe a certain weather condition um, in Italy, which I thought was actually quite nice. Um, well, as far as whether I worry, um, I don't think I do. I think that I sort of, you know, have to have a certain trust in the publishers who bought the rights. Um, and again, I, I guess, I guess personally, I have such a huge respect for the act of translation, and I read a lot of translated literature. Um, that, yeah, I, I just, as I trust that um, they'll make it into something of their own. Well, it's tempting to finish the interview asking you what's next, but I'm going to leave that space open, let you enjoy you. your success, <laughs> um, but be assured that when your next idea is ready to seed and sprout, that there'll be a very enthusiastic audience waiting. Thank you. Thanks so much, Claudia. And that was Victorian author Jessica Owl, winner of the 2023 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction, for her novel Cold Enough for Snow. Cold Enough for Snow is published by Giramondo Publishing and has been translated into 18 languages. Now over to Sonera. Thank you, Claudia. Coming up to something really topical, artificial intelligence. I'm sure you know that AI has taken the world by storm and is soon to impact our workforce. It is estimated that AI will replace 1.3 million jobs in Australia. The success of generative AI, that is artificial intelligence that can create texts and images, means that it will likely replace admin and customer service jobs first. While some may be concerned about being displaced, new Shafia Buddy Associate Professor in Computational Intelligence at Charles Darwin University says that AI may improve the workforce, but it is time to prepare the workforce to adapt to new technology. I asked Niusha what jobs and places will be the most affected by this change. What are some of the ways that AI is being used at the moment and what industries or jobs are already seeing the impact of AI? Uh, well, um, AI has different applications, and uh, not only recently, it was used. It was being used from the time of uh, the Second World War in intelligent control of the missiles and different uh, weaponry control and applications. And um, but in the recent years, we have had this trend and the boom of the AI algorithms and methods. Uh, one of the things that uh, I can see we it, it has been applied in is the financial sector, in the things like the applications of uh, AI in predicting the. 
credit score of the people. So the banks are already using those models in order to predict uh, the credit score for different people when they're applying for a loan. So that's a simple example. But uh, going uh, to the job front of uh, the AI and the jobs that it would displace and what jobs it has already displaced, um, it's very interesting that what it has done, it's exactly in line with the reports from the World Economic Forum and uh, different reports from different authorities like uh, the United Nations or the Economic forum and all those predictions are coming to be a reality. Um, when I was talking to one of my uh, friends about the jobs that AI has replaced, he was mentioning that when he was traveling, one of the challenges that he had was in uh, checking in into a hotel. And then it took him about uh, 10 minutes to stand in the queue and to fill in so many forms and to enter the credit card information, you know, and uh, to check in into his hotel, get the key and then go upstairs. But uh, there there was an app that replaced this uh, check-in as, a, you know, there was no receptionist in that hotel that he was mentioning. And they used an app. And through that app, when he arrived, he checked in into his hotel and uh, then uh, he had a virtual key. He went upstairs and it took him two minutes in order to check in. And he was so happy, you know, that he didn't have to wait for uh, 10 minutes. This is basically not AI, but it's one of the applications of digitization and uh, its impact on the jobs and on people's lives. Because that receptionist, after... Uh, this application is released, wouldn't have a job anymore. So that person's job is basically displaced. Uh, according to World Economic Forum's report on jobs, uh, the jobs that are most likely to be um, displaced relatively quickly are the clerical and secretarial roles and uh, uh, jobs like bank tellers, uh, clerical roles, Post service uh, clerks, uh, clerks, cashiers, ticket clerks, data entry clerks, those types of administrative and secretarial roles are expected uh, to be displaced relatively quickly. And this example that I gave you is uh, a reality, you know, it's showing that this is becoming to be a reality and it's not a joke anymore. You know, not to unnecessarily fearmonger about this, but to some people, there are some concerns, like even though there are some conveniences that come with AI, there are some concerns that, you know, um, they will be replaced and become redundant. Does implementing AI necessarily equal to more job losses? According to the World Economic Forum's report on uh, job losses, uh, they have predicted that by 2027, about 26 million jobs will be displaced by AI. So uh, that's their prediction. But the good thing about it is that the jobs that are going to be displaced are the jobs that they do not really require any analytical and critical thinking skills. And those are the jobs that are on the uh, on the 40% uh, 
downside of uh, the uh, job pyramid, the people who, who do not have any analytical and critical thinking skills are the ones that will, will lose their jobs. Um, so, it, you know, the good, th the good news is if now that we know that secretarial roles and clerical jobs are going to be displaced, it's time for the people to start getting new skills uh, to develop a kind of skill that uh, is, uh, you know, it, it requires analytical thinking. And those are the types of jobs that even, you know, there, there would be types of jobs that will be created. And AI really creates jobs for more people. But the types of jobs that will be created are the ones that uh, require critical thinking and analytical thinking skills. The types of jobs that are displaced are the ones that um, they uh, are based on repetitive uh, patterns that is easy for the uh, you know machine and for the algorithms to learn those patterns and complete them. As an example, if someone is responsible for, uh, if imagine a secretary who's responsible for answering the phone and uh, scheduling appointments, um, then a program can easily replicate the same thing. And uh, we can write the code in a way that it makes uh, appointments better than a than a human secretary because it can look into so many possibilities in a short time because of the processing speed of those CPUs that uh, these algorithms are run on. And then definitely it's cheaper. It works 24-7 and it doesn't get sick, it doesn't get emotionally involved in different things. And then that's why uh, the employers prefer to replace people by those algorithms and tools that are coming to the market for different applications. And uh, the main applications that uh, are very easy to replicate and to create uh, tools for are the ones that are based on repetitive patterns and repeating those patterns that are easy to create AI uh, systems for. Is it also a case of um, like, not only is it, is it more convenient and like effective, but like, does this, is this more effective than humans doing it? And, um, you know, um, not, risking human error or is there ways that um like there can be errors with the ai itself ai uh, is not error free uh, it's definitely it can it, it it can make mistakes but uh, humans also can make mistakes depending on the on how accurate the algorithms are, are developed and how accurately when when we develop and design them how accurate their outcome is um to the data that they haven't seen before um you know it but still uh, it, even if they're very very accurate they still can make uh, mistakes because uh, they we train the ai algorithms based on the data that is available to us and uh, in some scenarios, things happen that we haven't had that data on, you know, and that is the challenge. Um, 
in some cases when the, the algorithm hasn't seen that data and then the data is totally new for it, it wouldn't be able to predict and to have the right outcome as uh, we anticipated it to have. So definitely we wouldn't have 100% accuracy for those algorithms. It's not realistic to assume that, no, it's 100% correct. No, it's not 100% correct. And um, for all the AI algorithms, depending on who is, uh, how expert the person who has developed those algorithms is, uh, the accuracies differ. And they have to be thoroughly tested in order to make sure that uh, there, there wouldn't be any ethical issue in using them. And that's why these days, if you're aware, on the 30th of uh, October, President Biden uh, released an executive order on regulations on AI. And that's the reason behind it, because it's important to know that the algorithms that are released to the market don't have any issues or at least big issues for the society, for the people, for the human race in general. Uh, so it, it will be safe for us to use them. Mm. And you mentioned in your article in the conversation that, um, you know, we are privileged by geography. Um, how does where you live affect how AI impacts you? Yes, there is um, something called um, ICT uh, index, and that is actually an index that shows how ready a country is for taking on the ICT tools and having uh, those computer programs, you know, run on their overall system. And uh, when you look at the report, that uh, is showing that ICT index in 2012, the countries that were the five high-ranking countries for that are Republic of Korea, Sweden, Iceland, Denmark, and Finland. And there were some um, countries that were on the bottom five of that index that uh, were uh, the uh, African countries that were not that advanced. And uh, one of the other things to consider is uh, that uh, we have to look at how many employee, employee, employees are available in different countries, across different countries. When you look at the uh, working population, working age population living in different parts of the world, 84% uh, of the world's working population, they live in uh, developing countries. And uh, this actually has increased to 84% nowadays. It was a 73% in 2008. So it shows that the growth of the population in those developing countries is significant. And those working population and working age uh, people that are living in those countries, um, of you know, it's a disadvantage. One disadvantage for them is that um, these types of uh, clerical and secretarial and administrative roles are quite easy to do. And the because of high uh, numbers of the people who work in who need a job in those countries in compare with the other countries like the advanced countries or the first world countries, 
um, the, the competition for one job is really fierce in those uh, developing countries. And also, there are less regulatory requirements and regulations to protect uh, the employees in those countries. And um, given, you know, uh, the cost of hiring people, if you compare the cost of hiring people in developing countries to the uh, advanced countries, it's much cheaper to employ people in developing countries. And all these factors contribute to uh, that, uh, you know, people, more people working in these types of roles, like secretarial and administrative roles in the developing countries in compared to the advanced countries. So in conclusion, you know, you, we are anticipating that uh, more people uh, lose their jobs through those algorithms that will be available quite uh, affordably to the employers shortly, and their jobs will be displaced in compared to the countries like us, Australia, which is a first world country. So the people who are living uh, in, in the first world countries are somehow privileged uh, by the place that they're living in. Yeah, it's like disproportionately affects um, people who are like especially laborers in um, developing countries more than say like white collar workers here um, in a developed country like Australia. So with these people more likely to be displaced, how can people adapt to the change AI would bring? Is it possible that everyone that's being displaced from their jobs will find avenues for, for re-employment? Uh, I think it would be, it's better that we don't wait to lose a job. It's better to uh, act proactively. And uh, I think it's important for the people who are in those types of roles that are very likely to be displaced to start thinking uh, now and uh, start learning a skill or, you know, learning something that wouldn't really be affected by um, these types of technological developments. And then by, by attaining and by getting that skill, uh, they can just change their job and uh, they wouldn't need to worry about uh, losing their job. Mm, I know I know this is a very complicated like question. You know, do you think that in developing countries they have the capacity for that level of re-employment compared to um, a developing country like um, Australia? And of course, uh, the employment is not that great in the developing developing countries. Uh, countries like Australia, there are more job opportunities for different people here, or the first world countries. That's why that's one of the reasons behind uh, the uh, numbers of migrations to these uh, develop uh, to these first world countries from the developing countries, and. Um, but uh, nowadays, with the technology and with the availability of online trainings, and there are so many even free uh, trainings online, 
that people who want to start thinking about acquiring some kind of skill that is based on analytical um, abilities, they can do do it. And they, we are not bound by, uh, you know, where we are that much these days because everything is available online. And there is a way for other people who uh, are not in developed countries or in first world countries uh, to start thinking about learning uh, a new skill, something that needs uh, analytical thinking, something that is not going to be displaced by uh, AI or these emerging technologies. You just listened to Associate Professor in Computational Intelligence at Charles Darwin University, Niusha Shafiabadi, talk about how artificial intelligence will impact workers here and overseas. The link to Niusha's article, which was published in the conversation, will be in our show notes later today. We'll just listen to some announcements. Slutwalk returns to the streets of Nam for its 13th year in the fight against victim blaming, slut shaming and rape culture. Join the annual rally on Saturday 25th of November for speeches, stories and to take a stand. Come to the State Library of Victoria in Melbourne CBD at 12pm in person or tune in here on 3CR for a live broadcast of the event. Walking today for all the people Join us however you can to say enough is enough and become a part of the global movement, calling for education for all, accountability for abusers and justice for survivors. More info via Linktree slash Slutwalk Melbourne. Slutwalk Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and we have Sonera. Claudia and Grace back with us today. A special yes. appearance. How are you today, Grace? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a while, I realise. It's been a few weeks, actually. Only It's only been a few weeks, but it feels like it's been a long time. Good to be back here. Well, hopefully our listeners are also tuning in on Mondays and catching you there. Yeah. But uh, lovely to have you with us uh, today. So this week, Australia's radio sector celebrates 100 years on the airwaves. The first licensed station to broadcast over the airwaves was Sydney radio station 2SB, now ABC Radio Sydney. Community broadcasting in Australia emerged in the 1960s when demand was high for unique localised content through radio. Listeners grew, as did the respective radio stations, and by the 1980s, nearly 50 community radio stations across the, st- the country were on the airwaves. Today, there are more than 450 community-owned radio stations, making community broadcasting Australia's largest independent media sector. But community media is not so rosy everywhere. Our next guest is Sonia Randauer, a journalist and broadcaster who founded Malaysia's first community radio station in the early 2000s. Radic Radio brought the voices of refugees, squatters, factory workers and other marginalised groups to listeners in Malaysia via a shortwave transmitter located in Indonesia. We welcome Sonia this morning to tell us more about this grassroots project and share their insights into the international community radio landscape. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Absolutely wonderful to have you with us. 
So Radic Radio, the venture began in 2001, just as we were all developing our affinity with the internet. It was age of digitalisation. What was happening with you and in Malaysia? What prompted this initiative? Well, actually, it was the internet that made it possible to do this because we were able to send material. It was actually through Skype. We used Skype a lot to send material from um, KL, from the capital Kuala Lumpur, to uh, broadcasters in Indonesia. And we were a very, very small team when we started. Well, we started off as a 15-minute current affairs program. And we were just broadcasting five days a week, 15 minutes of news. And we thought that was hectic. We had a team of about six reporters and two editorial staff. And it was... We were doing Malay language news and we were the only people that were producing that content independently. So the main radio stations basically just took, they had very, very short news segments and they generally took press releases and just translated them into Newspeak. Or they used the main um, national broadcaster, RTM, would use their TV footage for radio. Um, So we were doing something quite different, even just by doing radio news at that time. Um, But we had funding issues and decided that that model, which was just internet radio at that stage, wasn't really sustainable. And we, it wasn't really in line with the scale of change that we wanted to be trying to promote because we were really trying to promote um, greater freedom of expression for Malaysians. And that remains the core principle of the organisation that owned RADIC, if you like, um, the Centre for Independent Journalism. Um, and we wanted to hear voices that really weren't heard. So even when we were just doing the news, we had we spent a lot more time on stories coming from the grassroots, very much like 3CR breakfast, um, as opposed to stories coming from the top down. We very rarely went to ministerial press conferences, partly because we couldn't get in, but partly because <laughs> they were stories that we weren't interested in. We wanted to be telling the stories of plantation workers that were facing eviction. We wanted to be telling the stories of people facing problems due to pollution in their area um, and things like that, rather than be telling the stories that were already being covered by most of the mainstream media. So that was the news thing. And then, so that was in 2001. And in 2002, we started doing moving to this more community format where we started working with community groups. And this was partly because of the funding crisis. We wanted to produce more content with less resources. So we spent a lot more time training, um, but also we had this partnership with an Indonesian station so we could tr- we could share material over there and get it rebroadcast into Peninsular Malaysia. It didn't get across into East Malaysia, but we still worked with community groups there as well um, so that their content could be shared. Mm. So you're talking about working with the community groups. Um, how did the relationships develop and the way you built solidarity? Was it um, the relationships were in place first or did they grow through the broadcasting experience? Was it a chicken and egg situation? Um, I think that we had... So we the team of people that we had got together 
we all had fairly strong community links. So I had been involved in the major human rights organization there, Swaram. Um, I was on the board of Swaram for quite a while. Um, we had people who were involved in the Socialist Party, Party Socialist Malaysia, who I think are often interviewed on 3CR programs here. Um, we had people who were involved in the women's, who had been involved in the women's movement. And we, the... NGO sector, the sector of progressive NGOs in Malaysia at the time, was really quite small because there was still um, a lot of legislation in place that, for example, allowed detention without trial. I mean, the Sedition Act is still in place there. There's the Official Secrets Act. Um, and the so it wasn't, yeah, it was a very small, quite tightly knit sector of people that were um, involved in um, activities that the government thought might be um, uh, subversive. So the, so it wasn't that difficult to get in touch with other community groups. I'd also been involved in environmental campaigns and things like that, so had contacts there, and I was also had contacts with um, the major Indigenous organisations in the peninsula. Well, we'll come to the Indigenous um, representation in a moment, but I just wanted to find out just a bit more about how this interaction with the community groups mm. played out and how the stories were developed and how you um, worked with the people and, and their responses to having this opportunity to share their voices but also difficult circumstances which is um, not always easy to to share at the best of times but let alone on radio. I think that um, one thing was that we developed ongoing relationships uh, I mean obviously we had the background but the the relationship between the radio station as it were um, and the community groups was ongoing so even after we stopped being able to broadcast on air we continued working with community groups and what we were I think that one of the main things that we achieved was helping to build um, solidarity between groups that had been quite isolated previously because it was so difficult to hear the stories of other groups facing similar issues particularly in terms of things like land rights but also again things in terms of things like pollution in terms of struggles for education and that I think that hearing the other the stories of other people that were facing similar issues really helped to build that network of solidarity among particularly indigenous groups um with the refugee groups that we worked with for example there was it was a bit more difficult because um with some areas there were underlying tensions from things that had and that so that was a bit more difficult but i think that yeah it the strongest thing we built was solidarity between indigenous groups I see. And now, like coming into the whole Indigenous representation, did you manage to uh, have any Indigenous Malaysians working in the station with you directly? And how how were the experiences represented there? Um, we didn't actually have any Indigenous um, Malaysians as staff, but one of the there's two shareholders of the organisation, and one of them is an Indigenous woman from Sarawak. Yeah. Um, so it was, and uh, it was partly because um, the the struggles are real um and that when the focus is on the community that you're in yeah. and that it was it was a nice add-on to have in some ways and it was important i feel i think <laughs> that it was important as i say in building that solidarity but it wasn't that they were interested in 
um, coming and working on this as a full-time thing, the people that we were working with. Um, we we worked with... Um, and what we were doing was very much about giving people the tools that they could use rather than trying to say, hey, look, we've got this fantastic project you need to be involved in. Um, so it, which also meant that there were some groups that were really interested and active continuously mm. and other groups that did a couple of one-off programs and that was about all and then dropped off the radar but even those groups would take the tools and do their own things with them and we fundraised for equipment for communities and things like this as well so you know it was really it wasn't about what we were doing to a large extent it was really about what they were doing um yeah i see and did you were there any like language barriers considering how like working with so many different communities all speak different languages and Malaysia is very common for many many different languages and even though the Malay is our national language um it, generally speaking with um because Malay is the national language and it has been a lingua franca for the region for such a long time um that we didn't have any problems communicating in Malay. Um, there were sometimes older people in particular, and it was actually more with um, the sort of urban pioneer communities where there were, um, for example, um, older people that only spoke their dialect of Chinese and things like that. Yeah. We didn't find that as much of an issue with um, the indigenous communities that we worked with. Um, and we were doing training in fairly remote parts of um, East Malaysia sometimes. Um, people who were illiterate, semi-literate, but um, because radio is, I mean, it's about storytelling. It's about um, being able to, you know, speak is the key skill. Um, it, it was, it's so much easier than working in any other medium I've found um, with people who might not have the confidence with something else. Um, I mean, we worked, we taught women who had never touched a computer before how to do audio editing because you can see things mm. on the screen. Um, it was so much fun. Um, and, and it also really, um, as I say, it just showed that radio is, I still think, the most accessible medium. Um, and that was why we wanted to do radio. Um, and it was as I say, it just comes naturally to people to tell stories. Mm. So you don't... The main thing is to overcome the fear barrier of having this great big microphone in your face. Yes. And once you get over that, people run with it. Definitely. And so you've also branched out to working internationally with community radio. And, and you represented Asia at the World Association of Community Radio Broadcasters. So what were what some of like the key differences and also like commonalities when working across different regions in community radio? Um, so I, what, um, I was one of the founding board of the World Association of Community Radio Broadcasters Asia Pacific branch. So we just set that up in, oh, and I'm not sure I can remember the dates properly yet. I think it was about 2004 that it was set up. But I seem to think everything happened in 2004. So I'm not sure if that's right. Um, and the so it was I was really 
working with community radio stations or getting to learn about really was what I was doing, community radio stations in the Asia Pacific. And I we were really just setting up and a lot of it was about trying to find out exactly what you're saying. What was it that the sector needed? What were the commonalities? What were the, And the differences were huge. Um, I mean, we're talking about a region that goes from Fiji, Australia is part of the region, all the way through to Afghanistan. Um, mm. And w there was some discussion about whether the Middle East was part of the Asia Pacific or not as well, or whether it was, a, but it, and it was North Africa in the end. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a huge and hugely diverse region not just in terms of language, but also in terms of the legal frameworks for things like community um, radio. Um, so you had, for example, I mean, Malaysia, where there was absolutely nothing, there was no enabling environment at mm. all for community broadcasting, where community broadcasting was largely done either on the internet, which was a slightly freer space, or as I say, illegally. Um, oh, on the boundaries of what was legal. Um, we didn't do anything illegal, but we pushed the boundaries of what was legal. Um, compare that to Thailand at the time, which had it in the constitution, although it wasn't there in practice, but it was in the constitution that there was a space for community media, both TV and radio. Um, as I say, they had issues with the implementation of that, and that was where that was interesting to see and how that would play out. And then you've got Indonesia, which had comparatively recently experienced their whole, the move out of the dictatorship and that and burgeoning community radio sector there, uh, which so it was just it was really exciting, um, and it was uh, India as well has a whole different story. Um, Nepal was going through revolutionary times and that's where the AMAC Asia Pacific headquarters is based. So it was, as I say, it was really about learning about the different environments that what had worked elsewhere, what wasn't working and how as a regional organization we could facilitate that learning between the radio stations and support that with, you know, um, with funding with policy with all these sorts of things mm. and advocacy mm. and now you now that you've also come to Australia here and work with the community radio here what what how did the, how did things compare with Malaysia it's completely different <laughs> I mean as so but it, there were things about the community radio sector here that kind of, I hadn't known before moving here so for example that it sprung out of the classical music um space which i think is probably unique internationally mm. that it started with music rather than starting with the politics um and, and the fact that so many community radio stations in australia do focus on music um rather than focusing on i mean there's still places for community and music yep. has always been really important for that but i was surprised at um the lack of overtly political radio stations particularly perhaps here in Melbourne where I'm based mm. um, and so and at the same time there's still the same struggles for things like funding um, for things like access to the airwaves um, and that so some of the struggles are similar but obviously the compared to Malaysia the infrastructure is so much better the actual recognition of a community radio space exists um, all these sorts of things are very very different 
And just before we wrap up, um, you've also been a strong advocate for change within the community radio sector, particularly in the gender equity space. Can you tell us what are the gendered aspects of community um, radio and community media and what are you trying to change there? Um, Well, part of it is trying to ensure that community radio spaces are accessible to women and friendly towards women or people who identify as women. So even things like um, access to toilets and toilet facilities can be an issue. Um, Transport to and from radio stations can be an issue, ensuring women's safety as they do these things. Um, And then going on to being able to have not just women's voices on air, but women in the managerial positions within community radio station, that it all so making sure that women are empowered at every level. And often you find women behind the mics, um, but not behind the panel. Um, so you women getting those technical <laughs> skills as well is really important. So yeah, well it's great to be sitting here with uh, a group of one, two, three, four, five. Ooh. Women. So, um, yeah, that's a a good uh, example of uh, us all being able to to be here today. Thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we leave it this morning? No, thank you very much. And perhaps I will be back um, another time (laughs) Um, on the other side of the questioning. Yeah, so um, we can reveal that uh, Sonia has, in a in her past radio experience, been here at 3CR, and we are hoping that she will rejoin us, perhaps on breakfast. Um, So listeners, definitely stay tuned, and uh, we hope to have Sonia back, whether it's on this side or the other side of the, uh, the panel. So thank you very much. That was journalist and broadcaster Sonia Randall talking about Radic, Malaysia's first community radio station set up in the early 2000s. And if you are interested in hearing more about 100 years of radio in Australia, you can head down to Ballarat tomorrow evening for Tuning In or Fading Out, Radio's Past, Present and Future. It's a panel discussion hosted by Jonathan Green from the ABC and featuring Pilar Aguera, who is our chairperson here at 3CR. We'll put the details of that on our website. It's a free event, but you do need to register. That's Thursday, November 23rd at 6.15pm at the Eureka Centre Auditorium. So a big thank you to all our guests and we will see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.